uh, guess what? It's time for another episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. I am your host, Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut, and guess what? Mark Dunn isn't here this week because he's teaching in Redmond. As a matter of fact, he's teaching some uh, some architecture out there in Redmond at Microsoft to a whole bunch of people, not just Microsoft people. Well, anyway, uh, I want to just apologize for sort of skipping the month of February. We've both, uh, Mark and I, have been absolutely, every week we've been training and teaching. It's just uh, out of nowhere the demand just spiked up in February. And unfortunately, we didn't have our gig, our, our, our gig racks, our portable gig racks uh, in place. So we didn't really have the opportunity to, you know, do a show from a hotel room or something. However, this is something that we're doing, and uh, we hope that in the future we're going to be able to uh, bring those things with us, and from whatever hotel room we're supposedly in, we can uh, record a show. So that's the goal, and I uh, thank you for being patient with us. Uh, tonight's guest is none other than Scott Hanselman, Chief Architect for Carillion Corporation. He is the MSDN Regional Director for Oregon, and uh, he's just got a lot of great content to share with you tonight. Uh, so without any further ado, I'm just going to introduce him. Hello, Scott. Hello, hello, hello. Now, uh, I noticed that you're the Regional Director for Oregon. When we right. talk, When we talked with uh, Chris Sells, he is sort of like an honorary RD. What's the story with that, anyway? Well, the, the regional directors originally started out being literally a regionally focused uh, extra net of evangelists. So my primary focus was to worry about the Portland metropolitan area, and there was a guy in Seattle, and there's a guy in you know Idaho. Um, but as as uh, the world shrinks, uh, the Portland market is the Portland market. But I spend time speaking in. I was in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and I was in England. And I was in Germany talking. So I don't. Right. I don't uh, necessarily focus regionally. And the more and more, I think the RDs, yourself included, spend uh, time locally, but we are as globally focused as ever. And right. there's nobody better to, to speak to the world about .NET than, than Chris Sells. So having him join the RD community, even though he happens to live kind of down the street from us, was kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So we as regional directors are there to uh, support the local development community and also sort of act as a liaison between the local office, local Microsoft office and that community. But as you're pointing out that this is a uh, just a group of people, then, you know, if, if you have two uh, heavy hitters from the same city, you know, the regional yeah. part of it just goes out the window. So I mean, who wouldn't want two Michael Jordans on a team? You're exactly. You're throw one out just because. Uh, an example would be myself, Chris... Bill Vaughn and Chris Kinsman, right. you know, all RDs in the Pacific Northwestern sense, were all at a, at a presentation at Microsoft recently. So, yeah, yeah, I'm totally jazzed to have Chris involved. Well, I've really enjoyed some of the things that have come across my inbox from you on the regional director list. One of the coolest things that I remember that you did was that uh, uh, you wrote an operating system in C Sharp in college, uh, and just an amazing amount of popularity about this. What, how did that happen? Uh, that was kind of a strange thing. For some reason, when I end up writing code for uh, for school, I just can't stand the idea that I'm going to turn this code in and someone's going to sit on it. And you know, it's not going to be used. It was just an assignment. Um, I've been trying to squeeze my four-year bachelor's of science in software engineering into the last 11 years. <laughs> uh, right now, I'm chief architect at Carillion, so I do that kind of 50-hour-a-week job. And then uh, in the evenings from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., I go to school at the Oregon Institute of Technology uh, and then kind of you know, eat, sleep, code, study, rinse, repeat has been my life for the last several years. And I'll be graduating in June. And there was an advanced operating systems class where we were to to write a an operating system and an abstract CPU given uh, literally just a specification document. And in my little OS uh, distributable, I include that document. We were given a number of things, like it's a 32-bit uh, CPU. It has these specific um, instructions, this instruction set for incrementing a register, these are how wide the registers are, all the different kinds of things you would expect in any theoretical right. CPU operating system environment. And the, uh, the the rules were I was supposed to write it in either, either C++ or in Java. Um, C++, I spent, I, I, I felt that I would be 
spending more time bit twiddling and pointer dereferencing right. if I wrote it in C++ and less time truly understanding the concepts of, a, of, a, of an OS, memory management, paging, memory protection, scheduling, threading. That's what I was there to learn. I didn't want to spend a lot of time you know, I've lived in C++ for 10 years. I don't want to do that. It's not my, um, yeah. it's not the language my brain speaks. Right. C Sharp, my brain speaks C Sharp. And that's, you know, when I, when I started writing C Sharp for the first time, I realized, oh, so this is this programming language. It's been in the lizard part of my brain for the last 10 years. And finally, someone's given it a name. Yeah. It, now, you know, w- w- does it, this is all a theoretical operating system. Does it run? It, it, it totally runs. Um, it runs on top of .NET, so it would be like okay. an operating system emulator, for Emulator, example. all right, good. So you would give it, um, there's a little tiny assembly language that, it, it, you know, it's custom instruction set that you give it. Right. It acts as an interpreter right now, Okay. but you give it this byte stream. It loads it up into its memory, so its memory might be 256 bytes. That's bytes, not K bytes. Right, right. So, and it has 11 registers, and it has an instruction pointer, and it has a stack, and it has a code segment and a data segment, and all the things that, all those logical constructs that you would think about when sure. thinking about the CPU or an OS represented in a physical sense in .NET. Cool. It's command line driven, um, and you can hand it, um, you can type tiny OS and then give it four, five, six applications. It'll manage scheduling between them. Wow. Um, it's all written in C-sharp entirely. And one of the things that was great about this is I had to convince the teacher to let me do it. Because this huh. was, a, this was a, a, you know, a scholastic academia guy. Right. He was like, Java, C++, are the only real languages. <laughs> .NET is beta. And I'm like, it's been out for a year. And he says, no, it's beta. We can't do that. Trust me. Let me just do this. It was an eight-week class. It was a summer session. Had to get it done fast. Um, because... The concepts were really what I felt I was writing to. I was write, writing a, a scheduler, writing a memory manager, writing a pager. For example, swapping out memory. Yeah. Let's say that I'm going to be dealing with a 256-byte memory space. That's insane. But my address, my address space is, is a full K, a right. luxurious full 100, you know, 1,024 bytes. Right. It's time to swap something out. I've done a um, least recently used algorithm, and basically we've got a um, a victim page that needs to be paged out to disk. Hmm. Well, I could write a bunch of code to do that, or I could just make a memory page object and serialize it. So one of the little ironies of this abstract CPU is the virtual memory swap file is XML. (laughs) I swap out. So so I might have like an open tag, the word unsigned byte, you know, or unsigned unsigned short, and then say close tag, the number one, Wow. So I mean, I bet I bet your software, your code was probably like a hundred percent more readable than anyone else's too. It's fantastically readable, and in, and in this particular case, because the goal was speed, it's incredibly um, slow. Yeah. I mean, it it was written as um, I literally like took out a memory pay, an operating systems um, book and said, "How do you do demand-based paging? How do you do virtual memory?" Yeah. And I looked at their algorithm, and I wrote the pseudocode. Hmm. And the pseudocode looked an awful lot like C-sharp, and then I wrote the C-sharp. So you can literally read this yeah. and get an idea about how choosing a, a victim for a page would look like. Interesting. So how popular was it? Well, I I couldn't just let it sit there. I needed to kind of spread the word because intellectual property, whether it's an assignment or not, it's it's some work was there, and to let it lie fallow would have been a shame. So yeah. I, I stuck, up, stuck it up on um, got.net, you know, the uh, .net community site. Right. And and darn it, if it didn't become popular and get featured on the the front page of Got.net, and uh, I think it's something like 5,600 or 5,700 downloads later. Wow! And then I translated it to VB.net, which was a hilarious thing. I yeah, used the funny. C-sharp to VB.net translator, tweaked huh. a bunch of the code. There were some signed unsigned issues. Yeah, that's that's a problem. Yeah, some of the integers that I used were unsigned, and VB.net complained because they weren't CLS compliant. Um. But once I cleaned those kind How, of how'd you get up, around that, by the way? Well, it's one of my secret shames. I ended up just using a, a data a data type that was double wide, okay. and using only the higher byte the higher bytes. You know, oh, that'll work. Long and use the upper ones. And then okay. I had a little bit of um, code that would take things like an array of four bytes and turn it into an int. Oh right, and sure. Vice versa, vice versa. Yep. So I would just change that in the VB.NET version, which you know basically lied to the rest of the system. Right, Things sure. were okay. Which is a good example. I mean, I completely encapsulated that kind of functionality. So the the memory subsystem changed slightly for VB.NET, but it didn't hurt anyone else. So how long have you been a programmer? I have been 
coding for money since 1991. Okay. I started a small business out of, um, in high school. I graduated in high school in 1992. 91, I was doing, um, C code, like when, back when Hello World was 93 lines of code, SDK stuff. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time in like 93, 94, 95 when Windows 95 was just coming out, helping Uh people write single source code compiling to both 16-bit and 32-bit. Right. So I would spend half my time in Visual C++ 151 and half in you know the new version of whatever Visual Studio was called at the time, the new 32-bit compiler, and then doing all sorts of if-defs to make sure that the same exact MFC application would compile for 16-bit and 32-bit so and you're, then use the same underlying database. So your company uh, that you work for now, Carillion, what do they do? Um, Carillion does web banking. We have an application server called Voyager, and when you want to go on to, say, Bank One or you know Washington Mutual or one of these larger banks and check your bills, do bill pay, check your accounts, maybe download things into Quicken or Microsoft Money, uh-huh. or maybe now you have Quicken or Microsoft Money and you're connecting over literally a, a consumer-based web service uh, that's called OFX, the Open Financial Exchange, which is not a web service in the SOAP sense of it, but in the XML over HTTP sense, it's it's arguably a web service. Right. We write all of that infrastructure, that middleware that sits between the web server and the host. Cool. So it's kind of e-finance, host integration, all the, the, the things that are involved in that. It's a pretty exciting thing. So you guys are responsible for the bank nickel and diming me to death? That would be me. I'm actually the guy that <laughs> writes the, the code that that puts the message in the queue that get nickel charges function. you the nickel. Yeah, get nickel, get dime, functions like that, right? Right. I've, I've implemented all of those. <laughs> God, yeah, don't but, banks suck? <laughs> banks are the worst, aren't they? Um, I'm getting a little frustrated with the whole idea of um, it's your sixth ATM withdrawal of the month, and now it's time to hit you for a buck. Oh, come on. I know. It's ridiculous. I know. I'd even rather pay 20 bucks a year to have unlimited ATM just to deal, just not to have that kind of little niggling detail of, here's a buck, you know? Right. Here's the privilege. I'd like so some of I'm just doing them. the whole debit card thing. Me too. Cash back. Yeah, me too. That's when you, that's when you nail them. Yes, I'd like some of my money. Well, why? Well, because it's my money. Well, we're going to have to charge you for that. It's my money, you know. And I like it also when you don't have enough money in there, you know, then they take more from you. And then charge you for the privilege. And charge you for the privilege, right. But the guy who's got all the money in the world, they give him money. And the people that don't have money, they take money away from him. It's just screwed up. I think, you know, most people just have a bank account because, you know, they have to write checks and they have to make secure transactions. I can't wait for the day when all of them just bite the dust. On what, some, on some, yeah, on some, jars? on some common protocol, you know, that's a much simpler than the big behemoth, and uh, you know, we can surf our own cash, etc. Just hmm. can't wait. I don't know if we're enabling that kind of functionality. No, I, th- I don't think we will, but I think eventually it's going to happen. Well, one of the things that I get to be involved in while working uh, at Carillion is is dealing with what are the next web services for finance going to look like. Okay. Protocols like the IFX financial exchange protocol or OFX, which is the open financial exchange protocol. When banks move money, whether it be from consumer to bank or from bank to bank, uh, I have to deal with that. And banks have been dealing with structured data like XML or the original version of OFX was actually SGML. Yeah. They've been doing this for for years. Um, Believe it or not, Microsoft Money I think 95 or 97 has been moving structured XML back and forth over hmm. HTTP for quite a few years now. So makes sense. I mean, you know, it's the obvious first thing for a, a web service. Sure. So have you had any experience um, upgrading applications from old versions of C or C Sharp or, or C++ or VB or Access or anything? Yeah, actually in a number of different ways. Um, on the larger scale, our application, the Voyager platform, is a C++, multi-threaded COM, DCOM, uh, probably three, arguably even four-tier application. And we can talk about that, but but one interesting little thing that I did was for a uh, a small local nonprofit here in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, called uh, Pioneer Courthouse Square. Every city has got that uh, buy a brick and get your name on it kind of a deal. Oh, yeah, like yeah. Seattle, Pike Place, you know, buy a brick and 20 bucks and then you can go hunting for your brick. Yeah. There's something like 100,000 bricks in Portland at this square, which is at the, the center of, of Portland, of the city. And literally, they've had these things written in spreadsheets, on paper, on photocopies, in Excel. Huh. 
where's your brick? Well, I bought this brick in 1981. <laughs> That's just dying for an application. It was killing me. This was actually years ago when I when I, I went to work with them uh, just on a pro bono kind of a thing. I think it was like back in VB3 Access 2 days. Oh, boy. And, uh, oh, man, it was one of those things where I had a bunch of... Um, a bunch of ladies in a line who would type this stuff into Excel, then just give me the Excel. I'd import it into Access 2, and then a couple hundred thousand bricks later, they came up with a, a scheme for, for numbering the bricks. But the, the square downtown has been built up and changed, so there's no real um, nice, clean, battleship-style A5 grid. Right. There's, you know, your, grid, your thing could be at, like, Z95 or B12, and they uh-huh. could be next to each other. So there was no real clean business rule there. So I wrote a whole bunch of code I'm ashamed of, just hairy, horrible code in VB3 to do a um, a little rich client application. And it worked, and it worked for years. It it printed out the thing. It would do a nice little uh, Win API GDI drawing of um, an X over a a map to show you kind of where, within a few feet, where your brick is. Uh And it worked happily. And... um, Every once in a while, they'd update the, deck, the, the, the uh, access database. But then recently, I was thinking to myself, what would be a fantastic demo that I could give that would be harmless but um, would get people engaged when I give my presentations? And there's just something personal about this brick finder. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I'm just going to go and write this thing over again in .NET. So you didn't, this- you didn't upgrade then? Well, so I got this VB3 application, and I said, how can I get this from VB3 to VB.net? It's too far. Yeah. I know I can get the data out from Access. So I took the data out, took it into Access 2002, and then from there did a DTS into SQL Server 2000. So that was easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then used a stored proc in lieu of a query in Access. And then I said, well, VB3 to VB.net is too far. I'm going to upgrade it via the standard ways that we upgrade things, switching data grids, going from DAO to ADO, right. and go in from VB3 to VB6. Okay. Got the thing running fine in VB6. Then I realized that all of the code to view the bricks in a grid is really pretty commoditized. It's not really useful. It's, you know, go to the database, get some stuff, put it in a grid. What the real work was was that spaghetti code, those pages and pages of select case statements that I right. don't want anyone to see. Yeah, you're, you're selecting logic. They may suck, but they work. Yeah. I mean, they suck egregiously, mind you, but it would take me longer to try to get them as, as nuanced as they are and get them working again if I wrote them over again. Uh-huh. So I just took that chunk of where is the brick on the map logic and put it into a VB.net drawing DLL using the VB.net upgrade wizard, walking through all the best practices exactly like the MSDNN online cookbooks say that you should. Okay. Then I made a separate DLL that handles drawing. It would take a graphics interface from .NET. Graphics object, yeah. Graphics object, rather. Drop the bitmap on it and then decide where the X goes and then hand it back. I did that for a specific reason, that I wanted to have a rich client application written in .NET, a WinForms app, and I wanted to reuse that exact same component to do dynamically generated GIFs in ASP.NET. Cool. And, you know, darn it if it didn't work. There was... Tuning sure. of the select statement, but for the most part, I used simple data types, ints and longs, things converted cleanly. Yeah, I graphics had to rewrite all the graphics. grid code again, but we can do that visually. Right, right. And I ended up putting it up at pioneercourthousesquare.com. Hmm. Hosted it with ORCS Web, the fantastic guys over there. The whole thing was done in like two days. Two wow. days of screwing around. Um, and now they can use the exact same data DLLs and the exact same graphics drawing DLLs with that horrible code hidden comfortably in a black box that no one will ever see. And then the I could make it a web service pretty easily. Right. So what uh, if somebody came up to you and said, you know, I have this uh, VB6 application that I want to upgrade to .NET, what's your first reaction? Rather than having a first reaction like do it, don't do it, it really depends on what it's doing. Right. I've seen VB6 people who have 30 data-bound, entirely kind of VB6 connected fat client type apps. Yeah. I would probably say start over. That's yeah. a non-trivial thing. They used all the data binding that VB6 sold them. Yeah. All the data grids. That's um cuz there is no connected model with ADO. Yeah, yeah. It's a very that's a very subtle house of cards. Yeah. And if it works, use it. Right. Now, if they came to me like with something that I had where they had a simple grid or two and a a whole series of non-user interface 
non-database-based business logic. Right. Um, doing some kind of analytical processing of some kind. Then I think it's possible. Sure. I think it's possible. There, there are issues I came along like overflows, data types, dividing by a forward slash as opposed to dividing by a backslash. Little what, subtle things. What about graphics like GDI, API um, stuff? That was a that was a paradigm shift. Um, because GDI Plus is so fundamentally different than GDI and so fundamentally simpler, um, all of that Windows SDK code that I had back in Windows um, 3.1 and then consequently in VB6 was um, all those declare, declare function, right. doing all these bit blitz myself. HDC-centric kind exactly, of stuff. Exactly, rather than releasing DCs and keeping track of... I remember how when there were only, what were there, only 16 DCs or 12 DCs that mm -hmm. were available in the system. Rather than worrying about any of that, um, I thought about the logic that it was trying to accomplish and literally took four pages of, of really complicated code to draw this stupid line and turned it into like, you know, yeah. I don't know, 15, 20 lines of GDI code. It's so like, cool, you know, isn't it? Draw X. I handed a brick object, it draws the X. It was like literally nothing. And passing these graphics objects around, even though we as, as kind of .NET insiders realize that the graphics object is really just a thin, thin layer over the top of a, of a DC. A DC, a right. Context, With some great methods on it. Yeah, they've insulated it so well that you just don't sweat it. I especially love, you know, creating an image like a bitmap in memory, getting a graphics from it, draw, text, fonts, whatever, graphics, anything you like, and do whatever you want with it. Save it, print it. It's just beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it was literally like, like, like the printing example. The I had entirely separate draw it differently based on the DPI of the printer code in VB6. Yeah. If anyone's worked with the printer object in VB6, it was nightmare. Yeah. So it was write a bunch of code to draw to the screen and write a bunch of code to draw to the printer. With this, it was literally like writing English. It was like new image, I have image dot load, you know. Right. It was just cheese. It was fantastic. Yeah. And then pa and then taking that um, graphics object, passing back the image, and then this time instead passing it into ASP.NET, then saying response.content type, setting the MIME type to image slash uh, GIF oh, yeah. or image yeah. slash JPEG, serializing it out to a memory stream, and then suddenly a graphic appears on the screen. It was fantastic. Very cool. And we'll be right back after these messages with Scott Hanselman right here on .NET Rocks. Stick around. Hey, so I'm looking at the current issue of MSDN Magazine. Hey, there's this guy, Carl Franklin, who wrote one of the feature stories in there about Visual Studio.net 2003. What you need to know today about the new and upgraded features in Visual Studio.net 2003, which should be out shortly. It should be out in May. As a matter of fact, the launch is going to be in April, the end of April, and you should have a local launch event in your town or somewhere near there around the 1st of May or sometime in May. Uh, check your local Microsoft office for that. Anyway, there are other great articles in this uh, March issue of MSDN Magazine. Chris Sells does a great job of telling you what's new in Windows Forms in Framework 1.1, Visual Studio Net 2003, and uh, talking about security, language support, Excellent, uh, excellent article all about uh, compatibility, things like that. Um, and Juval Lowy, our friend, uh, writes an article about contexts in .NET and how that you can use uh, custom services and syncs by sort of sticking yourself in, in between the component and the CLR and uh, providing custom services, compression, encryption, whatever you want to do. Uh, very powerful stuff, and Juval's a, a very smart guy and... and uh, explains it very well. Hey, if you haven't guessed by now, MSDN Magazine is the premier magazine for serious .NET developers. Don't joke around. I mean, get the, get the right stuff from the best sources there are, the experts that are out there doing this stuff. Check it out at msdn.microsoft.com slash msdnmag or just click on uh, the MSDN logo on our .NET Rocks website. Now let's get back to our interview with Scott Hanselman, Regional Director for Portland, Oregon. And talking about a lot of code issues, talking about reflection, uh, regular expressions, multi-threading, and uh, lots more right here on .NET Rocks. Don't go away. This 
some really exciting sample code up on ASP.net right now on the website, www.asp.net. The reporting SDK includes a lot of really great code to teach people how to take um, data sets and turn them into uh, dynamically generated pie charts, bar Okay, charts. What's, what's the reporting SDK? I haven't seen that. It's some kind of bit of um, sample code, kind of a la Northwind or Fabricam, one of these sample applications that they're giving away huh. up on ASP.net, the, uh, the community site for ASP. And they're including this series of sample code as well as objects to abstract the drawing away from you where you can hand in arrays of numbers and bits of information to um, a bar charting class. It doesn't have the kind of rich charting interface that you'd expect from a component vendor like Infragistics mm-hmm. or Dundas, but it does have the beginnings of understanding, like what I went and taught myself, how to figure out to, how to draw to a, uh, an image context, and an image object rather, and then print it out to the screen. Uh, they had some really neat techniques that I think if I was going to go back and do it again, I'd probably look at some of those techniques that uh, they offer in that free code. You um, are a big proponent of, you know, things that are free on the web. Um, why are you more apt to try some shareware or freeware utilities if they're written in .NET? There's, there's, a, there's a feeling I get when I see a, a component that looks fantastic. You know, the first time you see a component vendor's site or some, you know, Joe Freeware's site, and you see the screenshot, and you go, ooh, <laughs> I can use that. Yeah. Because the first thing I do is I don't want to see the fact, I don't want to see your doc. If you don't have a screenshot, thumbnail that I can click on and get a larger screenshot. I don't want to talk to you. Right. I see the screenshot. Then I download it. I see a setup.exe and I get a little uncomfortable. Yeah. I run that setup and there's a certain color of blue, a certain kind <laughs> of a blue gradient that I see and a certain font style and a certain button style. If it's got a funky OK button or maybe that OK button has a big green checkbox. Not a lot of thought it, put into it. Yeah. And I go, oh my God, what was this thing written in? Yeah. What system DLL is this thing going to write over? Yeah. You know what? You know VB6 VM version are they using that they're going to just completely obliviously copy over? And then what if I just want to check it out? Right. With .NET, there's none of that. I mean, literally, you get a zip file with a readme.txt and an exe. Yeah. You get kind of all the benefits of a rich environment of Windows, and the simple ease of deployment that you get on like a Linux or a DOS. You copy it into a folder and you check it out. Yeah. So instead of having a cluttered C colon program files folder with 15 different utilities, I use. I've just got C colon backslash utils, and I've got 118 little exes in there. So you write a lot of your own utilities, too? Yeah. I'm really getting big into um, command line utilities again. Um, when, you, when you add the, the, you know, the, the, the Windows equivalent of the cron job, the task scheduler, right. and uh, the power of either running something as a service that you wrote in .NET or using a simple command line interface, I've got a lot of batch jobs that are running in the background doing things. Pulling, um, I have a batch job that pulls information out of a specific Outlook folder and saves it into a specific format of XML for consumption by a website. So yep. my business users can post to an Outlook folder. I suck it out automatically, put it into XML, and then style it out to the web. You like this one? I found a place on the web where I get a, a, a Northeast New England satellite weather map that's updated every five minutes, uh-huh. and I uh, put that as a service just to go and download it. Put it put it into my desktop. Uh, uh, graphic, and so I get that up in my upper right-hand corner. I'm always looking at the current weather overhead. Totally, it's a perfect example. And you know, another uh, kind of silly example, but one that that saves people time is we have a series of logs here. Various programs create various logs, and um, some of these different dis- uh, disparate systems have log files that are not the same. There may be debug logs that somebody just kind of whipped out. So they have different date formats, different formats for um, different pieces of context they load into a file. Yeah. Um, if I want to look at those in a unified sense, I could write a Perl script, which would be terse and confusing, but possible. But Or I could just use the regex class, write a nice, simple command line utility that would go and say, see all those logs? Figure it out and stick it into a database or spit it out as a unified log. So sort define, by date while you're at it. Define regex for us. Okay, so, so regex is the regular expressions library that dot, the .NET framework includes. And mm-hmm. one of the really powerful things about the .NET framework, when you compare it to the other frameworks that are out there, like VB6 could be arguably a framework, and MFC is a framework, and writing code in ASP is a framework, is that the, the knowledge that you learn when you, become a, when you become a 
MFC guy or you become a uh, ASP gal is that switching paradigms is complicated. Being able to go from being an MFC person and an MFC mindset and all of the utilities and the APIs that you memorize when you're an MFC person, switching that over into another world is almost impossible. It's non-trivial. You're basically becoming a whole new kind of programmer. Yeah. When you're in .NET, they've unified the API in such a way that a convenience and a convenient utility class that you learn in one environment on the web can be used on uh, in a WinForms. And Regex is one of the the perfect examples of an incredibly powerful, complete little engine in a, in and of itself that the .NET programmer could utilize anywhere. I use it in the command line. I use it in my ASP.NET applications. I use it in my WinForms. And regular expressions are a a little I wouldn't call them a markup language. Like you can probably help me with the best way to describe. It's sort of like a format formatting language. Yeah, it's like the, the kind of it's a really extended version of what you'd expect when you do like a printf. You want to describe exactly a pattern that matches within a string. Yeah. You can do search patterns, substitution patterns. You can say something the equivalent of, um, "I'm going to be getting a date, and it's probably going to be." DD month month year year, but it could also possibly be DD month month year 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 year. And when you do see that, I would like to then have it returned in this other format. Is this um, something? So you, sorry, is this something that's worth uh, that's worth learning the regular expression syntax, or is this something that um, you know is a little too obtuse for most people? It really kind of depends. Regular expressions are a terse way of expressing what you could do in. You know, a hundred lines of left stir, mid stir, in stir right. type string processing functions. Yeah, it's a declarative way of expressing what could be expressed programmatically, and I think yeah. that that difference between being declarative and being programmatic is an important part about .NET right. and attributes are another example of where you could write a lot of code or you could just decorate something. Yeah, I think that although it's terse, if you want to, if you're doing string parsing, if you're doing um, string manipulation of any kind that is uh, a little more complicated than just give me the left four characters or just grab that third word. I think regular expressions are worth are worth looking at. It's worth noting it's it's really arguably a language in and of itself and uh but it's also a skill that you'll use other places. Right. Um if I learn I learned regular expressions probably maybe 50%, 60% and the rest I can just look it up. True. But there's so, lots of fantastic utilities. Chris what did you, uh, a utility? What did you what what uh, reference did you use to learn the um, well, actually, I, I collected a series of regular expressions uh, libraries and repositories, and I put them up on my website at computerzen.com. There's five or six different online repositories. I know that the guys at Three Leaf Software at threeleaf.com have got a regular expression repository. There are databases of searchable things. But though these are for simple things, like if you want to simply have a regular expression that validates if a an URL is correct, or that a, right. a a British date is in the format that the Brits like. Yeah. Um, but typically, I use visual designers of regular expressions. There's a a .NET one called uh, I think it's regexdesigner.net that Chris Sells has. There's one called Espresso uh-huh. that lets you de- de- um, generate the entire regular expression without ever having to type anything. You just select check boxes and select pull downs. And I put all those up on my on my website, and I'll leave a link of all the different things that yeah, we talk we'll, about. Yeah, we'll have that on up on the site. site. Sure. Very cool. Yeah, I, I noticed. Uh, I think Dan Appleman has an article on regular expressions, and there's some other articles out there on the web that uh, explain it. I've sort of just been limited to uh, what the regular expression validator in ASP.NET does, which is a very cool thing, by the way. That's just unbelievable. Well, there's also um, regexlive.com, which is a pretty good one. They've got about two or 300 regular expressions. Oh, cool. Um, there's also a regular expression workbench at got.net. Interesting. Dan Appleman's got that book that I think is uh, like a $9 book. And there's also a nice yep. site called the, the DAO. It's a T-A-O the DAO of regular expressions, which is another good site on regular expressions. So the the URL is the DAO of regular expressions dot com. I would just search Google for the DAO of regular expressions. Okay. It's actually <laughs> sitescooper.org or something like that. Okay. But um, there's also a, a tool called Sharp Develop, which uh, is a, a kind of an open source C Sharp IDE that has a built-in regular expressions yeah. builder. So there's really three or four visual builders, as well as a series of books and articles you can use on, hey, on learning the syntax. That brings me to a great uh, question, which is, you know, the config files in .NET uh, can be very frustrating to use, especially if you're a VB programmer who's not used to uh, case sensitivity 
and uh, just having to nail it exactly right, you know. Um, I've seen, I saw an early configurator program out there for .NET config files, you know, web config or your application config or even machine config. But I haven't really seen any in a long time, and I was wondering if you if you use them, uh, or if if you know of any good resources. Sure, there's uh, one from a company called Hunter Stone. It's called the Hunter Stone Web Config Editor. Cool. One of the cool things about Web Config and Machine Config and their relationships is that although they're kind of spread all over the disk and with um, Web Config and your ASP .NET applications, you can have hierarchies of Web Configs. So yeah. You have like a parent. Uh, site that then has a child site that then allows overriding of some settings, and then that child site can override some things. Yeah. Hunter Stone, this uh, company's got this little utility that recognizes and searches down kind of recursively and finds all of the web configs, and then makes lets you view them as one tree of con- kind of conceptual declarative um, rules that will be applied to this series of web applications. It's a oh, nice! Really cool application, and actually. Um, attaches itself to the config extension. So when you double-click on a config file within Visual Studio.net, you find yourself in their editor. Oh, that's and great. Where can I get that? It's a, it's a company called Hunterstone, and let me find out. Well, we'll get a URL up there. Sure, Don't we'll worry. get a URL. It's a great. fantastic application. It's it's really inexpensive. It's like Hunterstone.com. Oh, that's great. I can't tell you how much I've been uh, looking for one of those things. Well, I haven't been looking, but you know, every time I get in there in the config files and I say yeah, to myself, you know, there's got to be really, a better way. XML is great, but this is a tree. Show me a tree. Yeah, exactly. Especially remoting. You know, there aren't a lot of great examples of configuration for remoting, and yet that's probably the most important part of it. Mm, that's um, a good point. Yeah, so... Uh, so what are some other great uh, add-ons or add-ins? You built an add-in? Ever built one? Um, I've built add-ins for Outlook. I've built add-ins for Word. And um, I have built wizards for Visual Studio.net. Mm-hmm. But I haven't actually written an add-in for v- VS.net. But that's actually on my plate for the next couple of months to write some add-ins. I know a big uh, part of writing add-ins and writing code and looking at code is reflection. And not a lot of people know what that is or you know, have had just a vague idea. Um, can you define reflection for us, or just tell us what it what it does, what it is, why it's important? Well, reflection is reflection is one of those things. It's hard to get your finger on if you're not familiar with it, uh, or you haven't been had it baked into your brain. It's it's a way that allows you to programmatically examine metadata of a particular type and those types members. So if you have some object, that object is an instance of some type. And um, like if you've programmatically accessed some com type libraries before, then mm-hmm. reflection in .NET is very similar, but it's a lot more powerful. It's a lot more straightforward. Um, all the types in .NET, any type at all, whether they're reference types or value types, are basically derived from system.object. Yeah. So what's exciting about that is that the system.object has a get type method. Yes. That get type method returns an instance of uh, a type called system.type. Which is a source of confusion among my students sometimes. Yeah, it is. How do you explain it? I say, you know, it's confusing. I say some functions require a type object and some require the name of the type and just get used to having to deliver a type object sometimes. And if you have to do that, then you use get type. Yeah. Yeah, type is just a, a another object that describes the object that you called get type on. Yeah. So... um the the system dot type provides a number of APIs that allow you to retrieve information about that type, all yeah. the different things, and all of those um, can those descriptive classes and descriptive objects have uh, have an info suffix. So you'd have like member info, property info, method you know, uh, constructor info. Right. So um, you might say something like um, you might have a function that takes a type. Um, so then someone would pass in the object and call get type on it, returning a type. And you could say something like type.getMethods. Yeah. You could say, give me all the public methods. I want to know what exactly is going on in this uh, cat object, so I'm going to go and enumerate it. And then I'll say get methods, and I'll ask for the binding flags of that particular method, and I'll say, give me all the public methods, and that'll return an array of member information. Those binding flags are a little tricky. They are a little complicated. Yeah, I've, I'm still yet to f- trying to figure out how to get a list of public uh, events that doesn't include all sorts of other crazy things that I don't want. Right, because if you say, public, if you say binding flags public and binding flags instances, you get everything. Everything, right. Yeah. Yeah, oh, so no. 
Yeah, exactly. So you usually have to go in the middle of your for loop when you say for each. You've got to go in and uh, clean it up, and that's clean not it really up. that's not really comfortable. I'm sure I'll find a solution. You know, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. So, so, uh, so that's that's very cool. Uh, reflection is you know something. If you want to get a list of the properties, get a list of the methods or the classes that are in this assembly, any of that metadata. You can even look at. Uh, can you look at attributes as well? Sure, you can look at attributes. You can even look at non-public things, depending on what kind of access rights that you have. But the thing that's funny about reflections is a lot of people say, "Well, so right." You know, why? That's that's interesting for a demo, but tell me something that's going right. to make my life better. And um, there's a fantastic add-in for Visual Studio.net that allows you to write tests. Uh, there's a lot of it's a proliferation of testing and unit testing going on in the .NET environment right now. Right. As the uh, a port of a previous unit testing framework called JUnit for Java has been ported over to .NET called NUnit. Oh, I didn't know that. And a lot of people are doing what's called test-driven development, where um, rather than going and writing a cat object and writing cat dot meow and cat dot you know scratch <laughs> my furniture, they actually write the test first, and then write the object and continue to write the object until it passes all of the tests. That's one way to do it. Other people find themselves with code, like, like my tiny OS, for example, that they didn't write any tests for, and maybe they're feeling bad about it. I don't want to have to go and tediously write tests for every single public member that's in my class. Wouldn't it be nice if I could hand some program, my tinyos.exe, and say, write some code for me. Give right. me a test this and test that. So with reflection... There's, a, uh, there's an add-in for NUnit. It's literally just go up on Google and search for NUnit add-in, all one word. Okay. And it sits inside of uh, sits inside of Visual uh, Studio, and there are ways with macros where you can say, take that uh, take that assembly, iterate over everything, and then using the code DOM, which is a an object model on top of code go and write a series of tests. So if I have cat.meow and cat.scratch my furniture, and I say, here, go and generate a test for that, I'll get a test case that derives from the NUnit base class for tests, and I'll, it'll go and write stubs for test meow and test scratch on my furniture. Hmm. And it's got me, you know, 30% of the way there and doing yeah. a lot of work that would have ordinarily been really quite tedious. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, thinking about reflection is not necessarily reflection in the context of a runtime situation. It can be just as much in the context of a design time. Right. Very good. So, you know, there's a there's a, a huge movement to share code in the .NET community. There's lots of websites. There's forums like the forum that I'm up on, uh, vbcity.com in the vbnet forum, for example. There's tons of just little pieces of code, classes and projects and zip files flying around the internet everywhere why is what what's so compelling about uh sharing code in .net well .net and the the concept of an assembly that is completely um self-contained an assembly is self-contained i don't have to hand someone a vb6 dll with a .reg file or say right. here's this dll register it i don't want to give you the code i i i worked really hard trust me it's good code register this and then this will let you put an icon in the system tray, or this will let you pop up a balloon tooltip. Um, people don't have this sense of hanging on to what is commoditized code. Yeah. .NET is, is raising the water level. We're, we're getting higher and higher levels of abstraction. People want to solve compelling and interesting business problems. Right. They don't want to hoard their little piece of code that shows you how to put an icon in the tray. Right. In other so, words, you're finding less people worried about people disassembling their code to see what their business logic does. And uh, more to the point, uh, people are more concerned about maybe protecting data, but protecting your code isn't such a big deal anymore because, after all, the whole of the application that that uh, somebody's going to steal or, or mm -hmm. do, do whatever to. Um, from my point of view as someone in the banking industry, I wouldn't say that we're not concerned about someone stealing our code. But I would say that .NET has really made it clear what's commoditized. Right. If I know Windows, here's a good example. If I know Windows can do something, this is the thing that would keep me uh, awake at night. Someone gave me a task. A business user gives me a task, and he says, figure this out. And I'll spend a day or two fighting with Visual Basic 6 or fighting with MFC to figure out, I know that Windows lets me do this. Right. What is the magic incantation to do that? Yeah. And then once I found it, after busting my ass for a week, 
um, I'm going to hoard that because that's that makes me smarter. Right, right. It has nothing to do with what the business guy asked me to do. Yeah. In .NET, .NET is unlocking what was previously hard in Windows. Is easy. Right, right. Here's six lines of code to pop up a tooltip balloon. I'm in e-banking. I don't care. Now, right, right. my e-banking algorithms, I will use code signing, I will use strong names, I will use obfuscators, because that's my intellectual property. That has nothing sure. to do with codeproject.com or VB City. Right, right. But it's just, uh, it's so funny, I spend so much less time in .NET saying, gosh, how am I supposed to do this? Because right. there's so many other people out there that are willing to share, and the method in which they share is either... Here's some source code, and here's a, a public license that it's under. Yeah. Or here's, or here's, a, here's really a convenient link. assembly. Don't have to register it. Just use it. Knock yourself out. Right. Yeah, I, I found that was true with... Uh, I needed some code to validate a um, mailing, an email address. Mm-hmm. And uh, that hinged on the fact that I needed a way to look up a uh, DNS server and make a query for an MX record, basically. Mm-hmm. And the only place that I, I searched Google, I searched everywhere, the only thing I found was a Russian website where there was some C-sharp code that did that. And uh, it was there in its entirety. I literally copied it out of the browser, pasted it into a new project in Visual Studio, and compiled it. And it ran. Isn't that fantastic? It was just awesome. Yeah. I, I, I've got to say that I probably am writing... 60% of what I'm writing, I'm really writing, and the rest of it is is found. Yeah. And when I say found code, it doesn't mean it has a, a lack of quality because it's transparent. I can look at it and I can go, oh, right. here's how this guy exposed the underlying security ACLs of NT via, you know, interop with p-invoke. Yeah. Now yeah. I know, too. And what that means is that we all get smarter. I mean, literally, .NET makes you a better programmer, but it, it makes you smarter because... Um, as they say in all the .NET marketing literature, uh, the ceiling, not uh, C-E-I, but rather ceiling, S-E-A-L, yeah. of .NET is so much higher. You can you can look into places that they never let you look before. Right. As a VB6 guy for a number of years, we were always told, don't look over there. Don't look at that's That's the runtime. Right. You're you not concerned with that. You just focus on VB. VB spent so many cycles trying to keep us from understanding what was inside and what Boy, was the first true. thing you did in vb6 is you tried to figure out how to get around it with an ocx or a message cracker right dot net says you can be as high or as low level as you want one thing i particularly love about the framework is that uh all the objects you know especially the controls the graphical controls gdi controls mm-hmm. all those controls have been written with you know methods that were would normally be private methods have been protected overridable so they've set you up to override these functions, you know, that happen that would normally happen at a low level inside of the component. And of course, you know, you can just look at it. You can just l- disassemble. You can use reflection. You can look at in the, you know, in the uh, debugger, uh, all the private members, all the public members. Go to town. It's There's just a, a beautiful. fantastic tool from a uh, the guy who wrote uh, Reflector. Uh, I think his name is, I don't know how to pronounce it, it's German, but his name is like Lutz Roter. It's called the LSW.NET Reflection Browser. And it's a typical kind of uh, handed in assembly, and I'll reflect over it and show you all of the types and methods um, in a tree view. But where it changes is he'll disassemble it and then give you a drop down that allows you to pick the language you want to view the disassembly in. Wow. Show it to me in C Sharp. Show it to me in this and that. Wow. It's a fantastic tool. It's from the same guy that brought us Reflector and Resourcer. And um, the ability to look at that, even though the CLR will remove the names of local variables and we'll see things like local 1 and local 2, it really gives you an idea of program flow. Have you found any uh, golden nuggets in the .NET framework that you didn't know were there recently? Uh, golden nuggets. I... I wouldn't have. I, I couldn't pick one out. But one thing I could say is that I found myself wondering how the string builder class in .NET dealt with uh, multi-threading. Yeah. Okay. And I tried to run around inside of an, uh, the Windows implementation and just couldn't quite figure it out. I'm not that good at reading IL, and I really don't choose to be. So then I went over and found the rotor source code, which is the shared source initiative for Microsoft. The, yeah. Linux or BSD version, rather, of, of .NET, and I looked at the source code. And it may not be exact, but it sure gave me some insight into some of the locking and things that they were doing to, to provide some, some measure of um, you know, multi-threaded smarts.
The VBNet Masterclass is very, very popular at Franklin's.net, but your company might have some specific needs that may or may not be addressed in the Masterclass. Well, we've brought this Masterclass as a framework on-site to dozens of companies all around the United States and overseas. And what we do is we customize the content to your needs. So if you have a web-centric versus a Windows-centric application that you're building, if you desire experience in a particular technology like remoting or sockets or multi-threading or something that's not covered in the master class, uh, we can do that. We can set up a custom class. We'll come on site if you've got eight developers or more. And get this, it's the same price, whether you take it on site or whether you come to New London. Our toll-free number is 877-273-4838. And, uh, or you can just contact us through the web, www.franklins.net. If you have a VB team and you want to move them into .NET, with the most amount of efficiency and getting the most bang for your buck. The VBNet Masterclass in Connecticut or on site. It's up to you. Check it out. All right, now let's get back to Scott Hanselman and .NET Rocks where we get into the discussion about threads and threading and uh, some great utilities as well. Stick around. So you've done a bit of asynchronous programming, multi-threaded programming, I take it? Um, enough to be dangerous. You can always hurt yourself with threads. <laughs> oh, man. I think Dan Appleman has sufficiently scared all the VB programmers with his book, uh, Moving to VBNet, which was out, one of the first VBNet books that was out, mm-hmm. by the way, on Beta 2. Uh, you know, and that's the first s- text that I read on thread. Now I'm a VB programmer, okay? Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of threading was new to me until about a year ago. And, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've known about threads and multi-threading, but programming it, in other words. I didn't, right. I wasn't one of those guys who was on the bleeding edge of VB6 doing multi-threaded applications. Just not, yeah. wasn't me. Um, and, yeah, he sufficiently scared me enough to think, okay, well, I really have to think this through. Uh, you know, I could, I could set a value on one line of code and read it on the next line, and it could be different than what I set it to. Um, anyway, I have found that, uh, in my multi-threaded designs, I've been seeing more and more people using shared members uh, to get around thread synchronization issues. Ooh. Now, is that to a, read from or to write to? Uh, to read from. Okay. To read from. Mm-hmm. Now, um, tell us what the deal is with that. I mean, with with shared members in the framework, there's a lot of shared classes or shared members. Or sh- if you have a shared variable of this type, it's thread safe. If you don't, it's not. Right, shared in VB.net being static, static. In, in C-sharp. Right. Um, you know, I'm probably not the best guy to talk about that. I don't know what the, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly or understand exactly where static in .net specifically, where, where those are living. Okay. And when, is that, is access to a shared member synchronized, you know? Right. Or do you just, is it one of those things where we don't know and we just let it happen? I don't know. My biggest problems with threading in .net are, that there's still a message pump underneath WinForms. Yeah. And doing nice, clean, multi-threaded, uh, fat clients is yeah. non-trivial, as it always has been. And the most help I've got out of that is reading the, the, uh, calculating the digits of pi example that Chris Sells put up on, um, Right, where we call invoke on the form and. Exactly. Yeah. So is invoke required, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would have to say that if the average VB forms programmer were going to get involved in multi-threaded programming, um, from a user interface point of view, I would limit themselves to like the the form thread and a background thread. Yeah. And you know, find a nice library that hides that from them. Make sure to call you know is invoke required and uh, right. and then invoke if they need to. Yeah. Um, really think about it as a place to to queue things. And let me know when it's done. Just right. in a, just in the, in the sense of um, just to save uh, the appearance of, of being responsive. Up the UI. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I tell people, Scott. Yeah. yeah. One of the I, things that I don't have a lot of experience in that I really would like to understand is what uh, what I want to know is is exactly what's happening in the the underneath. Um, I know that in Java there's the notion of green threads and native threads. There's kind of the Java simulation of a thread, and then there's the notion of an operating system or native thread. Right. Is there any similar construct in .NET? I mean, or is it really just a, a thread as a thread? No, I know that's true. The, that uh, is true. Yeah, Create that, thread and new thread are the same thing. Well, yeah, um, a thread in dot, a .NET thread is not an OS thread. It's an abstraction of an OS thread. So it would so. be what we'd call a green thread. Yes. In, in Java terms. 
Yes. Now it relates one to one with an OS thread, but it's a thread class, uh, right? So they that have it, a secret uh, hidden shadow friend who's there. The thread. You got it. In the back. Yeah. Well, and I, I learned that interestingly enough from Don Box and Chris Sell's book about uh, .NET. Really, I'm about halfway through that right now. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. Isn't it great? It's hard to read. Don is a very ter- he says it in the in the opening. He's a terse kind of a guy, and yeah. you, know, you ha- kind of have to iterate over his sentences. Essential .NET is the name of that book. We'll provide a link to that too. Yeah. I think that thing about threads is right in the beginning where he's talking about uh, context and application domains and threads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what I want to understand is that when we're when we're tuning threading in the config files, for example, with ASP.NET, um, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, Spots in the process model section of web.config of max IO threads and max worker threads. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people who are receiving a great deal of um, requests to an ASP.NET application and then consequently trying to get back out, they're trying to have that ASP.NET app call a web service. Yeah. Um, on their highly loaded boxes are running out of threads by which to make that call out. Yeah. So, you know, getting that web request and the, and the underlying socket to pop up. Uh, is a problem. So, you know, what are the right settings when you have a a very kind of I/O intensive? Well, I know that I know that the thread pool has a has a limit by default of twenty five threads. Right per and, CPU. Yes, and you can bump that up, and mm-hmm. you can also write your own thread pool. It's not that big a deal. I mean, yeah, you just have to true. serve up a thread, you know, and you know determine which one is in use or whatever. Right, but there's some little things underneath of .NET, like for example, WinINet and the HTTP. Oh yeah. Uh, stuff where for example like officially in the HTTP protocol you're not allowed to make more than two calls out as a client of a server. Huh. So there's this um setting in the bowels of the registry that says I will go ahead and I'll break the spec and and make that call out. So if you're doing like, you know, HTTP 1.1, you make a call and you want to reuse that connection. Yeah. But if you have 50 60 things all trying to reuse the same connection, you might want to make a new connection. The spec and Windows limits you to two. Uh, that's in uh, in the RFC for for HTTP section hmm. eight point one point four. Does that that's a that's something that's going on in the bowels? I shouldn't have to think about that kind of stuff. But inevitably, once my design is set up, I find myself spending the most time debugging .NET on the the border yeah. between .NET and the real world, .NET and the OS. I've got a several peeves with WinINet. Uh, just the fact that you know if you make a connection to something that isn't there it just sits there and it mm-hmm. just sits there and sits there and if you don't do that on a background thread you're really going to hose yourself yeah it's a problem it is a problem um clemens vasters made an interesting comment that when you were going to be talking to some external resource some precious resource whether it be a database or whether it be a um uh, a web service have the component hosted inside of complus inside of enterprise services and let them figure it out <laughs> that's a good idea which yeah. is kind of an interesting way to kind of push the responsibility back to someone who uh, presumably has solved that problem before. Do you um you find yourself using sockets a lot? I mean, a lot of people ask me, Carl. You know, you're Mr. Sockets. What's uh, so great about them? Why why wouldn't I just use a web service or remoting? Why why should I implement my own interface? Well, from the point of view of us as a and myself as an architect of a banking company, we're going to have ten thousand, twenty thousand people online trying to transfer money around. Right. Um, and the difference between me sending a, a custom binary format right on the top of TCP that takes, you know, 30 bytes and the difference between sending some, whether it's compressed or not, some SOAP message that's going to be on the order of a couple of hundred bytes. Right. And then you do that a million times. Right. You're talking about some serious, some serious bandwidth. I mean, it's the, literally the difference between a few gigabytes a day to, you know, a couple of hundred megs a day. Yep. It's orders of magnitude, so that's why what we do um, for our, our load balance, we have, we, we have an implementation of component load balancing, that's our own custom thing, mm-hmm. meant to tune and uh, spread out COM objects. We use DCOM, and I think when we move to uh, using remoting, we'll probably think about binary remoting as opposed to using web services for those kinds of low-level details. Right. As much as I like the high-level experience that SOAP gives you, um, when you write something generically, like SOAP has been written, it will always be slower. Slow. And when you write something specific in binary, it will always be faster, full right. stop. It can't be argued. It's true. There's nothing TCPIP, faster. 
Yeah, right. TCP/IP used to be thought of as an awfully fat protocol. Yeah, people were true. like, "Oh man, we're we're twiddling bits, we're changing Indian, we're going big Indian, little Indian. What are we doing? <laughs> this is work that doesn't need to be ha- seven layers. Who needs seven layers for a <laughs> protocol? Right. What are we talking about? At some point, we'll come to the time when I don't know there'll be a soap special coprocessor inside of the Pentium. Oh no, handle this. But until that time, when we take that for granted, like. You remember when you used to ask people, I'm having trouble talking TCPIP to you. I'm running Trump, uh, Trumpet Windsock. What stack are you running? Yeah. We oh, had to actually Lord. debug TCPIP stack. Trumpet stacks. Windsock. Remember I remember Trumpet? that. Yes, Fantastic. Windows 3.1. So, exactly. Windows for Workgroup, trying to get all that stuff to work together. Do you use the Microsoft stack? Do you use the Trumpet stack? There's the a couple other stacks out there, too. Oh, yeah. Some third-party things. I remember if you looked in the back of PC World. You'd always get those guys. You could buy their stack for 39 bucks. Get yeah. Get free Telnet tool. <laughs> So if you're going to do that um, and, and, and worry about things at that level, which in the old days, the 90s, we had to, right. then yeah, people will go, oh man, this is way more, um, it's too heavy, man. Let's it's go really, back to IPX, SPX. Let's write to a file. It's really not that big a deal to uh, to do a sockets implementation. You get some skeleton code like you could download from my, my site or there's other, there's other places. There's great books out there that just have plug-in, you know, multi-threaded socket servers and clients. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just to comprise your, like you said, your own protocol. All right, I want to send a message. Okay, well, it's going to have a, a structure. It's mm-hmm. going to have uh, four bytes for a, a long integer for an ID, and it's going to have, uh, you know, like 25 bytes for a string or something like that. And we're just going to put some data in that, convert it to a byte array, and send it out. Exactly. You know, do I want to write this to a flat file delimited? Do I want to write this out uh, with a structured thing like XML? Yeah. Sometimes a nice ta- tight flat file, you know, which is the equivalent of taking a, a, a binary stream of bytes and saying, here, it's going to look like this. Watch for that fourth byte. That's the, the ending or whatever. You right. Know? Smoking. You have to be a little more attentive to detail, but, you know, well, you it's do, but you, you look at, like, if you ever um, take, like, a, pro, a tool like, um, like YAT, yet another trace tool from Simon <laughs> Fell at Pocket Soap. Fantastic tool that really easily lets you watch the traffic go by. It's a packet sniffer. Yeah. It's a packet sniffer for the masses. And I was watching a lot of soap come out of my box. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I mean, I'm a developer. I've got, I think, probably 23 things in the system tray. One of those things must be talking soap. What's going on? I found out that my little Groove collaboration tool was pinging its server. It was hollering back and going, hey, it's Groove. Oh, I'm still man. here. I'm thinking to myself, that's an awful lot of overhead to send Seriously. a soap message to let them know you're still here or yep. to log yourself in. Yep. But hey, it goes over HTTP, it traverses firewalls, and, and I'm sure it was easy to write. True. They, 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 they chose to forget about the wire protocol. Yeah, as a, lot of, peop- as a lot of people uh, don't know, you, know you, can, you can still go over through the firewall with HTTP using remoting mm-hmm. and get about 300 times the performance. Exactly. And it's just a matter of saying, well, do I want to do this generically, reuse it? And abstract it away from myself, or three do time. I want to make it a little more specific? Three here times. At, here at Carillion, we we balance that. Internally, there's some proprietary things that we do, but when you're trying to do systems integration, you got to go lowest common denominator. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is there any uh, one last uh, can't live without utility tool that you want to impart on us? Share with us. One last. Ah, oh, there's so many. Um, I don't know. There's so many tools that I'm using right now. One of them is which called, one do you use the most? tool do I use the most? You know, if I could say there's one tool that I would install Windows and then install that tool, Uh it would be Dave's Search Bar. Whoa. Dave's Search Bar, if you just go to Google and search for Dave's Search Bar, I don't know who Dave is, but he's a cool (laughs) guy because he wrote a search bar. It's a a text box that sits in your uh, start menu, and not your start menu rather, but your task bar, and you can type something in and it'll launch Google, right? So big deal. We've all got those. But he's built in some kind of a magical JavaScript regular expressions thing where you type in like um, Amazon and then and then the book it'll take you to Amazon. You type in uh, DIC for dictionary and a word it'll take you to dictionary.com. Cool. You type in uh, area code and then the area code it'll tell you the name of the area code. It's a huh. calculator. It's uh, it'll do hex to our RGB conversions. Oh, it'll cool. Do rot thirteen. It'll do whatever, and you can write your own little things. It's basically a command line interface. It's a shell for Windows that saves you. Probably saves me a hundred clicks a day, where I could launch up, you know, launch up the browser and wow. favorites. Dave search bar. It's it's God's gift. It really is. They that can is build awesome. it into Longhorn. That is awesome. Well, you got any last minute uh, uh, words of wisdom to impart on the listening audience? 
Drive uh, slow? If, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have to say that uh, learn.net, uh, tell your friends, talk to anyone who will listen to you about how great it is. I literally spend time like riding on the bus and some guy will say, you know, hey, you got that Microsoft T-shirt on. You work for Microsoft, you know? Can you fix my computer? Yeah. And I'll say, hey, man, have you heard about .NET? I'm like a, I mean, I'm like a, a happy religious convert. I want to tell everyone about my new religion and uh, spread the good word. And you know, I'm having a blast. And if if you're not using .NET and you don't know, you need to ask somebody. Very cool. Hey, you know, I just want to one last thing is that uh, I'm curious as to how you explain .NET to non-programmers. I I explain it as it's an upgrade for Windows that's going to make your life much much happier. Wow, that's a really high level way of explaining it to like you know your mom. Or... Right. I, I usually say that in the old days, what a programmer had to say was a whole lot of complicated words to say something simple. Uh-huh. And with .NET, the distance between the average Joe and the programmer is shorter. Yeah, that you know, still doesn't make them want to install it on their computer. To get them to install the framework, man? Right, right. Here, install this 20 megs, it'll make things better? <laughs> yeah. That's a real tough sell. Yeah, it is, but I think it's true. I really it's do. I think for Windows. If you want to get them installed, that's a fantastic way of saying it. You know, it's an upgrade that when you when you run when you install programs for it, they're going to be uh, more consistent. They're not going to crash as much, and they're going to have more features. And they'll probably be uh, written better, and you'll get upgrades quicker that do more sooner. You know, Microsoft ought to do that, and they ought to they ought to, they ought to spin it like that. Because I'll tell you, my mom's not running .NET. She no. doesn't see it. You know, doesn't see a need. It shows up in Windows Update, and she ignores it. Yeah. But if you said on the home page of Microsoft.com, upgrade your Windows, get .NET, I yeah. bet you people start downloading it. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Certainly makes it easy for them to install programs and programs that work. Actually, you know. Totally. Okay. Well, it was very, uh, very enlightening listening to you talk and and uh, conversing with you. I'm sure the listening audience enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, thanks a lot, man. Thank you. You rock. <laughs> .NET rock. <laughs> it certainly does. Thanks again, Scott. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.